Welcome back to Parashat Ve'et Hanan. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm the author of the commentary. We are on the top of page 8 on the written notes, and we are talking about God and his oneness, and how in his oneness he expresses himself more fully and most fully in the person of his son Yeshua. And yet at the same time, the Bible indicates that Yeshua is very God-veiled in flesh. It is incomprehensible to us humans. We can't understand how God can be one, and yet God expresses himself in three. We've already seen that the Shema declares that God is one, and that there is only one God that we owe our allegiance to. We've also looked at the Word according to Judaism. And in that uh, look, in that pre-recording that I pulled from a previous commentary, uh, we, we looked at the various scripture references, the, the raw biblical data, um, the quote from the Jewish Encyclopedia, and then we also talked about the Targum. Now, let me just turn real quick to the Targums. As, and as I mentioned earlier, um, the, the, on the top of page, um, or near the, near the middle of page 7 of the commentary, the Targums are the Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Scriptures. And if we take the word, word, which is Tavar in Hebrew, and translate it over into Aramaic, which is a sister language to Hebrew, the language most likely spoken by many people in, the, um, in, in ancient Israel during the first century, then we end up with the word Mamar. Okay? And Mamar uh, becomes personified in the noun, the proper noun, Memra. So let's talk about Memra real quick. On the top of page 8, this next section is entitled Memra in the Targums, or Memra in the Targumim. I want to do just a concluding briefer on the Targums, okay? Because, again, some people aren't familiar with what the Targums are and why they bear relevance to our discussion today. Targums are actually very old Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible. Now, they were authoritative and spoken aloud in the synagogues along with the Hebrew of the Torah and the Haftarah readings in the first century. Public readings of the scriptures in ancient synagogues were accompanied by a translation into Aramaic because, well, that was the spoken language of most Jews in Israel and in Babylonia during the Talmudic era, which, of course, was in, during the first century. The normal practice, as, it, as we've lear now learned, is, was that after each verse was read from a sacred Torah scroll, which, of course, was in Hebrew, then an official translator known as the Turgaman, or the, met, met, uh, the Metergaman, um, he would recite orally an Aramaic rendering right alongside the Hebrew. He would explain it to the people because they couldn't comprehend the Hebrew. Now, Targums were being utilized in the synagogues before, during, and after the times of Yeshua. We've got to understand this being necessary because many of the Jewish people of the day could not understand Hebrew. Now, this is still true today. I bet you didn't know that. Because of the, the assimilation and worldwide dispersion, the vast majority of modern Jews cannot read, nor speak, nor understand the Hebrew language. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, many Jewish people read Hebrew, but I bet it's a shocker to find out that many, it's a shocker to you Christians, to find out that many Jewish people don't understand what they're reading. It is true. Um, you don't believe me? Pop into it. Well, no, no, don't. Never mind. Don't do that. Um, just, just trust me. Today, no doubt, the most important and most influential translations of the scriptures are no longer in Aramaic, okay? But in English. English is an important translation for every synagogue that you'll find the worldwide. Now, perhaps maybe in Israel you find less of them in English, but the Targum of Ankalos, or Ankylos as it's pronounced sometimes, Ankalos or Ankalos, uh, is commonly included along with the traditional Torah scroll in synagogues, 
but its teachings have pretty much fallen by the wayside for the and for the most part they're ignored. If you have a blue humash, okay, it's a uh, a humash is a is is a is a a binding of the Torah portions, all all from Genesis through Deuteronomy, combined with their corresponding Haftarah portions, where it will go Torah portion, Haftarah portion, Torah portion, Haftarah portion. And um, there's commentary, and there's Rashi's commentary in there, there's Rashi's script. But along with the Hebrew script in every in every Humash, or Pentateuch, as sometimes that's named, Humash is a Hebrew word referring to the five books, um, coming from the Hebrew word for five, the uh, the the targum Ankalos is printed in these um, in these chumashim, and it's written in Aramaic. Although it uses the block square script like we recognize like we recognize Hebrew to be written in, so it looks like Hebrew, but I can promise you it's not Hebrew; it's Aramaic. Now, as useful and necessary as the targums um, at one time were for the Jews of Yeshua's day, their teachings today often listen to this often contradict the religious beliefs of many modern Jews. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. In fact, in point of fact, the religious beliefs of modern Judaism and that of the Judaisms of 2,000 years ago actually contradict each other in a very important area. Now, what area is that? Well, that area is none other than the identity and the nature of God's Word, the Memra of the Aramaic Targums. That's right. If you were to able, if if you were to, uh, if you were able, those of you listening to my podcast, some of you probably are. If you were able to read the targum, and then compare it to what the Hebrew says, you're going to find some interesting ideas being brought out by the targum that many Jewish people today do not espouse to. And I think they would be shocked if they would actually stop and read the targum, which is printed right there next to their Hebrew script. So let's talk about what the Targums introduce to anyone who wants to read them there, okay? If you don't have a copy of the Humash and you'd like to try this experiment on your own, go online, do a web search, do a Google search for English translation of Targum, or Targum in English, okay? T-A-R-G-U-M in English. Do a translation, find a translation of, a, of the Targum in uh, English on the web, and start turning to passages where God interacts with humans. For instance, the Exodus 24 passage I mentioned earlier. Read that in the Targum. Now, there are about five, I believe, five different translations of the Targum. There's Pseudo-Jonathan, there's Neophyte, there's Onkelos, uh, there's a few other that I can't remember off the top of my head. And I'm not sitting in front of my computer, so I can't tell you. The point is this. You're going to find, I'll just tell you up front, you're going to find that when God interacts with the humans, with us, with his people... Quite often, the Targumists inserted the Memra there as the divine mediator between God and between man. Does that mediatorship sound familiar? It should. Let's read on. This next section of my commentary is entitled, God Speaks. Now, the most common Hebrew expression for word, as I mentioned earlier in Hebrew, is Davar, which can mean word or thing or matter, or affair. That's what the word devar, the, the, the Hebrew word devar, connotes. Devar implies content, and in reality in one's words. Okay, That's what devar means. Devar means, devar is, is, is not empty. Devar is, 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 is weighty. Devar is substance, is what I'm trying to say. Okay, When people speak, and especially if they're speaking in Hebrew, Hebrew has substance to its words. 
Lots of words in English are just empty words. They don't really mean anything at all. Lots of words in other languages don't mean anything at all. But, you know, Hebrew was a language that God decided to preserve his revelation to mankind in. And so, Hebrew has a lot of meaty words. Now, since God is somehow, in the Hebraic mindset, untouchable, understand? It is necessary to provide a visible, or I'm sorry, a viable link between yod vav and his earthly creations. After all, God realizes that since the fall, we are unable to fellowship with him. The relationship is broken. The relationship has been damaged. And only God can repair uh, repair the breach. And so he set out to do this. One of the important links regarding uh, regarded in ancient rabbinic thought was the Word. All right, The Word of God. Now, the Word of God is not merely the Torah that we read, where God's Word is written down for us. I'm not merely talking about the Word. Rather, I mean capital T-H-E, capital W-O-R-D. The Word. And in Hebraic and rabbinic thought, this Word, which, of course, remember John uh, in his first uh, in the first chapter of his book, a self-titled book, refers to this word which was made flesh. The word called Memra in Aramaic from the Hebrew and Aramaic root Mamar, uh, uh, which means to say, or Amar, which means to say. Um, the word, all right, the root used throughout Genesis 1, when God said, you know, God and God said, let there be light, and God spoke. Obviously, God spoke the world into existence. Well, what the rabbis hint at is that the material world came into reality by this word. Now, obviously Christians understand this too, but let me just, just fill in the rabbinic part that, that the Christians maybe aren't aware of. The rabbis actually, and when I say the rabbis, it's just, I just mean the ancients. I don't mean the rabbis, the rabbis, but you know the ancients, the ancient scholars. Um, they, they, they understood that when God spoke that the word was a sentient being the word is personified the word is 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 god's creative agent the word is 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 what brought the world into in into into reality into existence now again that that, that sounds thoroughly christian but it pre it, it predates christian theology where did john get it from john was not christian in the, in the modern sense of the word christian john was hebraic and he says, yet, he, he yet teaches us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so John is giving us this, this inside peek into the world of Jewish thought. And again, other passages mentioned as too. Paul, of course, picks up, picks up on this, how that nothing was created without him, speaking of Yeshua. All things came to be through him, and by him, and for him. Now, the Memra concept, that of a divine mediator between the unapproachable God and the, cre uh, the creature man, this Memra concept occurs hundreds of times in the Aramaic Targums. And that's a fascinating thought, if you stop and think about it, that the Targums were written before the Christians came along. Again, I'm using the word Christians in the modern sense of the word where Christians define themselves as being brought into the scene around the first century, you know, Acts chapter 2, birth of the church and all of that, even though I don't believe that the church was born in Acts chapter 2. I believe something happened in Acts chapter 2, but I don't think it was the birth of the church. It was the bringing in of the Gentiles in mass, that's true. And the outpouring of the Spirit, that's also true. But what I mean is, the, 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 um, this concept that we're talking about with Memra, this pre 
this predates the Acts chapter 2 incident. Okay, that's my point. God's word has been at of, of utmost importance ever since the first day of creation week. All right, Genesis is full of, of God speaking. It is the primary way that God, the untouchable being, implements his will. That, that seems to be the case. It is also how he communicates and interacts with human beings and how he reveals himself in a way that they can understand his word, his words. Now we can keep going back and forth now. The word of God, the Bible, as well as the word of God, the sentient being the word, the memra, the word made flesh. Both of these, these, these revelations of God himself is how God reveals himself to us. On the one hand, God has done this somewhat through his writings, of course. He writes, or he had the, the people write his words down, and his thoughts, and his commandments, and his blessings, and, his, and, and everything else. And then we can interact with God. But there's much more to God's word than just ink and letters. Those materials merely constitute an inert, man-made record. In fact, to be sure, the Bible itself, the printed books that we carry... Without the Spirit of God to activate the truth behind the, the words, it's just another book. It really is. There's nothing special about it. On many occasions, when God's words actually came from his heart and from his mouth, it affected much more power and impetus than that of a mere page of historical information. You know what I mean? God's word is alive. It's powerful. It's quick and powerful, as if we just quote the verse. But it's only quick and powerful when the Spirit makes it quick and powerful. The letters themselves, you know, you can take an unregenerate man and he can read the Bible hundreds of times and never get anything out of it. To be sure, that's true today. We have hundreds of people who've read the nearly thousands of people who've read the Bible and have walked away unchanged. It doesn't change them a bit because they don't have faith. The Spirit must open the eyes of the individual so that they can grab a hold of that which is being spoken, the truth contained therein, and then they can begin to enter into a genuine relationship with the author of the words that they're reading. Why did God even bother to speak during creation? Let's go back to that for a moment. Why did God even speak? You know, he's God. He could have, he could have thought it, right? I mean, we're just speculating, obviously. He, it seems to be that he could have thought the words, you know, and then the creation could have happened, or he could have snapped his fingers, uh, or he could have given commands to his angels, and they could have um, put together the stuff for him. I mean, there's there's a myriad of ways that the creation could have happened. But you know, again, this is just hashkafa. This is just philosophy. This is just speculation, really. Why did he even bother to speak during creation? Why didn't the creator just do his work silently without uttering a word or a sound? And in fact, here's another question: To whom or to whom or for whom? Was he speaking when he said, let there be light? You know, God said, let there be light. Who was he speaking to? Was he speaking to the angels? Was he speaking to the creation? This can get really deep if we, if we try to figure out what's going on. And I'm not saying we're trying to figure out. We're, we're, we're obviously asking questions for the sake of, of, of worshiping God with the questionings. With, with, with the, uh, with the, with the um, what's the word? The, the, um, the supposition, we're, we're actually worshiping God with the wonderment. That's the word I was looking for, okay? I mean, who is he speaking to when he said, let there be light? It's clear that there is a creative dynamic force in the Almighty's voice, if I could put it that way. A power and an energy in his words, like the rabbis say. A tangible release of divine life, 
as it were. We have to realize that his word is an extension of his of his nature, a movement of his will. His word is alive, it's powerful and effective. It's 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 not just letters or syllables and sounds. God's word is so much more than that. There's vigor and activity in God's words extending uh, far beyond the applications of thought and communication. Again, remember, according to the Targums, which were at one time accepted as sacred Jewish belief, God's word is an entity. God's word is actually God himself. And that's not Christian theology. That's purely Jewish. The Memorah is to be worshipped served, obeyed, spoken to, and prayed to, and watch this, as very God himself. That's the whole reason why I'm bringing up this whole discussion about the Memra, is because in our dealings with Jewish people, and when I say our, I mean Christians, in our dealings with Jewish people who cannot comprehend that Yeshua is very God, it might be helpful if you remind these Jewish people about the Memra. Okay? So, with that, let's go ahead and draw some conclusions to my commentary. We're on the bottom of page 9, and we've only got uh, about three pages left. No, we don't have three. We have about we have about four pages left. This next section is entitled Conclusions. Is Yeshua God? It's come to my attention as one who answers a lot of email on this subject, that the phrases that are used can lend to the misunderstanding among adherents of this uniplural position, if I can use the term uniplural. The word trinity, as I mentioned earlier, usually only means one thing to the anti-missionaries. You know who the anti-missionaries are? They're the people who have... They're the people who have determined that they are going to stop the gospel going to Jewish people at any costs. The gospel, of course, meaning the message that Yeshua is one with the Father, the message that Yeshua can and will save anyone who places their genuine faith in him. This is the gospel. And this is the job of the anti-missionary, is to stop the missionary. The word missionary is synonymous with Christian. The word anti-missionary is synonymous with, what, anti-Christian, I guess? Jewish people don't like to be turned into Christians. They don't want to lose their Jewishness. They don't want to give up their Jewish identity. And, and guess what? For good reason. They shouldn't have to. That's something that the Christians need to learn. But that's a different commentary altogether. The point is, anti-missionaries don't like discussions about the Trinity because in their mind, the term Trinity only means one thing. And what does that mean? Three gods. You mention the word Trinity to a, 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 an anti-missionary, and the door is closed. Okay? Does it convey that meaning among educated Christians? Trinity, does it, mean, does it mean that to Christians? No. As far as I can understand, no. Educated Christians. Ignorant Christians, maybe. Educated Christians, no. They understand. Um, Christians do understand that there are not three gods. The Christianity does not espouse three gods. Okay, let me just say this. Christians do not believe in three gods. And this is what I would say to an anti-missionary. Christianity isn't teaching three gods. But the word Trinity is a, is a misleading term. It's a loaded term. Christianity believes in a God who expresses himself in a unity of three. It is his, the singular God, the one and only God, the one and only Yahweh. It's his inner nature being described by the word Trinity. His inner nature is his... Remember, we're talking about ontology, right? Christians, 
I might caution then, need to take care when using the word Trinity around unsuspecting listeners. Because again, not everybody uh, understands what they are trying to convey when they use these words Trinity. So again, as a Messianic believer, I do not espouse to three gods. I do not espouse to tritheism. Three gods, three separate gods, I might add, who are independent of each other, existing without cohesion. I simply do not. Traditional and historic Judaism correctly understands the Shema, which again, we're talking about Deuteronomy 6.4 and the following Pesukim. The Shema instructs its followers to worship and serve one God whose name happens to be YHVH. And in all fairness to Christianity, which happens to have sprung from one of the first century Judaisms, non-Jewish believers who know and study their Bible correctly also serve and worship the one God whose name just happens to be yod heh vav Okay? We are serving the same God. We approach Him differently because we don't fully understand Him. So, anti-missionaries, again, particularly those within Judaic rank today, they're fond of accusing Christians of recognizing three gods. After all, listen to what which listen to what Christian Jews say. Count them: God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, how many times did I say God? Aha, uh -huh, three times. So the anti-missionaries say, "You see, you said God three times. Therefore, there must be three gods." But really, let's stop and let's stop and be honest, okay? Is this accusation fair and accurate? Is it really? In all actuality, honest Christians do not espouse to the heresy that three separate non-cohesive gods exist in the Bible. Okay, It's a straw man argument, and the anti-missionaries need to drop it. Uh, they, they need to stop that nonsense. Again, what Christians are having a hard time expressing in words is the ineffable truth that the one and only true God himself is found to be revealed in a unity of three and why are they having a hard time explaining it? Because we don't have the stuff within our minds to comprehend God himself. We, are, we, we have to rely on the revelation that God has given us, which is complete, yet at the same time, we lack the capacity to understand and comprehend what God is. Quite simply, this means that there is only one God with the Son and the Spirit existing as part of the inner nature of God the Father all in cohesion with each other. However, to complicate the matter, I mean, Yeshua is God and the Spirit is God, but to make things complicated, especially to us, all three are separate deity. They are unique in their personalities. They're not one God wearing three masks. Both sides of the ditch we need to avoid. We need to avoid the ditch of one God with three masks, and we need to avoid the ditch of three separate gods. It's somewhere in the middle there, you know what I mean? The heresy known by the name tritheism erroneously assumes that there are three separate gods in contradistinction to one God. All right, That's heresy. We need to, we need to walk away from that. Worthy of um, worship, I might add, when I say tritheism. Tritheism says that all three gods are worthy of worship. No, that's heresy. From a Christian point of view, this heresy has its origins in the syncretism that the early church struggled with when they divorced themselves from their Jewish roots. That's what I was talking about when I said that there is a heresy that crept into the early first um, believing communities uh, because they had, you know, within the few centuries following the split between the church and the synagogue, if you understand my uses of the, usages of the words church and synagogue there, 
um, in the centuries to follow, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth centuries, um, Christianity was left without a foundation as to approach God by leaving the Hebraic mindset behind and adopting a Greek philosophical approach, then they opened the door wide to heresy. Now, this divorce, of course, was finalized in the third and fourth centuries following Yeshua's movement. The term that Christians use, Trinity, most likely refers to the inner nature of the God who expresses himself in a unity of three. That's really what the word Trinity is, is, is trying to get at, although it is found in pagan circles where it refers to other than one God. It does refer to maybe a three-headed God or, or, a, or, a, or the, um, uh, the tritheism heresy that I mentioned earlier. So again, the word Trinity can be a loaded word either way you look at it. The etymology of the word itself may occasion other meanings, which I'm not going to going into all of the implications of the word Trinity. Christians may want to be very careful, is what I'm trying to say, when using the word Trinity. Most of ancient theology is lost under the sands of time. That's, that's the sad legacy. However, archaeological expeditions in ancient Mesopotamia, for instance, have uncovered the fascinating culture of the Sumerians. Let's talk about these guys for a split second, alright? These people, the Sumerians, they flourished over 4,000 years ago. Now, now, Though Sumeria was overthrown first by Assyria and then by Babylon, its gods, small g-o-d, lived on in the cultures of those who conquered. They, the, the people who had conquered would just kind of assimilate this, their, 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 um, their deity and, and, and give them new names but carry the legacy on. The historian, for instance, S.H. Hook tells in detail of the ancient Sumerian trinity 4,000 years ago ancient trinity. Uh, we had the, the, the gods. There was Anu who was the primary god of heaven. He was the father. And then we had the king of the gods. Um, I'm sorry, An Anu was also the king. Um, and then we had um, Enlil. He was the wind god. And he was also the god of the earth and a creator god. All right. And then we also had this other one the, uh, called uh, Enki. Yeah. He was the god of the waters and the lord of wisdom. All right. This is from um, S.H. Uh, Hook's, um, let's see, uh, which book does that come from? Did I put the uh, reference there? I didn't, I apologize. At any rate, um, there were tr there, there's this trinity of gods in, in this particular ancient um, Sumerian tradition. And the, um, in fact, another historian by the name of H.W.F. Sags, he explained that the Babylonian triad also consisted of three gods of, of roughly equal rank, whose interrelationship is of the essence of their natures, end quote. So, we look at information like this, and you know what ends up happening is this just fuels the anti-missionaries. They, they, they say, see, this is proof positive that the Christian trinity descended from ancient Sumerian, Assyrian, and Babylonian triads. That's what they say. Now, is that, is that the case? Because Christianity is full of, of, of heresy, according to the anti-missionaries? Do I believe that's the case? Actually, no, I don't. I don't believe that's true. However, um, Hislop furthers the comparison, quote, In the unity of that one, only God, only God of the Babylonians, there were three... I'm sorry, in the unity of that one, only God of the Babylonians, there were three persons, and to symbolize that doctrine of the Trinity, they employed the equilateral triangle just as it is well known in the Romish Church down to this day. End quote. 
So what ends up happening is we've got Christianity using this Trinity concept with the paganism and the truth being mixed together and we get symbols that get mixed and matched and clearly some of the symbols within Christianity are pagan they're probably pagan symbols within Judaism as well so no one's no one's immune my point is is that it gives the anti-missionaries fuel to point their fingers at the Christians and say see there's no way that God can be three because look at all of the ancient pagan similarities between what you guys are teaching about God what the pagans teach about God and they draw their conclusion that only within Judaism is God one. And so, again, it's, it's a sad historical legacy that, that, that the Christian church has syncretized and synchronized and mixed and matched all the pagan symbols along with the truth, giving the anti-missionaries the, uh, um, the room to make the accusations that they do. You know, I, I wish I could tell you more, but... Um, I, I don't have space to do it in this commentary. But again, I do say a plethora of public information is available for the honest student in search of more proof that the church did not invent the three gods heresy, all right? In the absence of her Judaic foundations, however, I do have to say this, the early church fathers did in fact embrace many false teachings and doctrines, and many, I might add, to their detriment to include the heresy known as tritheism. The church does stand guilty of syncretism. So what about Yeshua's role in the minds of said Christians? I ask the question, is Yeshua God? If you ask your average Christian, what answer will you get? Is Yeshua God? Well, I want to answer for myself. I'm going to say that yes, Yeshua is the fullness of yod Vavhei existing in bodily form. Now, am I saying that Yeshua has existed from eternity past, just as yod vav has, just as, just as God has? Well, not exactly. Now, now before you cried foul, just hear me out. It, it's, it's, as I understand it, it's more accurate to say that the eternal word, which did exist in ex- eternity past with God, with yod vav this eternal word became flesh and by his mother Miriam was named Yeshua. In other words, I don't, I don't know that his name was Yeshua before he came to earth. I, I can't prove from the scriptures that his name was. Of course, I can't prove that it wasn't either. And so based on the fact that um, uh, we don't have any argument or we don't have any information, the argument is from silence. And so you can neither disprove that he was named Yeshua any more than I can prove that he was named Yeshua before he actually came to earth. Either way, I'm not saying that Yeshua did not exist with with the Father. What I'm saying is he did exist with the Father from eternity. Yeshua has no beginning and no ending. But there was a man who was born, and the Torah specifically states that a body was prepared for this man named Yeshua. There was a body prepared. And so... Where was he before the body was prepared? You know, it's a good question. Was he a spirit? It's a good question. When John says, in the beginning was the word, what substance was that word? Good question. You get, you get my point. The man, Yeshua, was born in the first century. The word, however, existed in eternity past with yod and as yod and that's that's I guess that's the only way I can explain it. Yeshua does in fact exist as 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 Hashem revealed in human flesh. He is Hashem in human flesh. 
but he doesn't exhaust the titles and roles that the Father and the Son enjoy, respective of each other. Again, in other words, Yeshua is Echad with Yahweh, but Yeshua is also distinct from Yahweh. That's how Yeshua could pray to the Father, because the Father is not the Son. The Father prays to the Son. The Father's the Father I'm sorry, the Son prays to the Father. The Son is subservient to the Father. How can the Son sit at the right hand of the Father if they're not separate in some way, but yet they're one? Again, our mind goes tilt, but we, we, we there's nothing we can do. <laughs> it's Hebrew tension all over again. And it's a fantastic display of Hebrew tension. Tension, if you take a rope, let me just describe Hebrew tension for you real quick. Take a rope in your hands, you know, and or, or it doesn't have to be a rope, just a cord or something like that. Grab one hand, one piece in one hand, and grab another side in the other hand. Give yourself you know, a foot or two between the pieces. Bring your hands together. You have what? Slack between the rope or between the, the cord. And now, pull in opposite directions. As you pull in opposite directions, you get tension on the rope. You see what I mean? One hand pulling in one direction, another hand pulling in the other direction, right hand going one way, left hand going the other way. And as you pull and, and hold tightly, there's tension on the rope. That's what I mean. We have... We have, we have the truth that God is one going in one direction and the truth that Yeshua is God going off in the other direction, a seemingly contradictory uh, direction, and yet the two don't destroy the rope. Okay, that's Hebrew tension. We live with the tension that God is one, yet Yeshua is, is one with the Father as well. Again, um, it's what moderns call a paradox, so I shouldn't have to explain it any further than that. The Torah contains more than a few paradoxes, but Yeshua seems to be the quintessential paradox. You know, the Torah is the final word on this important subject matter, not my commentary. I've just been rattling off things in my head, things that I wrote down. Again, I, I warned you earlier that this is my, my, philosoph this is my philosophy, my, my hashkafa. I don't fully understand exactly even what I wrote meaning I can't fully comprehend how God can reveal himself as his son. But in my personal opinion, as a mere human in scrutiny of God, I must believe and accept what the Bible teaches about God as a composite unity from Genesis to Revelation, or I must throw all of it out in desperation and conclusion that no such being called God can exist within the scope of human existence. A God who is defined in such scriptures as a unity of three. I either accept it all, or I throw it all out. It's that important. It's that serious. Because God leaves no room for a middle ground. Does our understanding of Hashem and Yeshua as Echad, uh, as Echad have, have salvific implications for us as believers? In case you couldn't catch it there. In other words, what I believe about God, does it bear relevance to my salvation? I actually believe it does. Again, let us turn to a few scriptural examples in my commentary here, okay? I believe that it has salvific implication. Now observe the fascinating interaction in these next few verses between Hashem the Son, I'm sorry, between Hashem the Son and the name, okay? Listen to these verses. I've labeled them according to who I believe the um, subject of the verses is. In the first example, the subject of the verses in question taken from the book of Joel, the subject, the person in the verse is none other than yod heh vav -Hey, Okay? God the Father. 
Joel 2.32, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the... And and then your your version says the Lord, but for emphasis I put yod heh back in there, so it still says the name of the yod heh The name of yod heh shall be delivered, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the yod heh hath said, and in the remnant whom the yod heh shall call. Now again, I know that's a odd translation. I did that on purpose. Take that verse and compare it to Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where Yeshua seems to be the subject. You ready? Quote, There is salvation in none other, for neither is there any other name under heaven that is given among men whereby, I'm sorry, given among men by which we must be saved. Did you catch it? The first verse in Joel says that God is the one, or yod is the one we must call upon to be saved. And yet in Acts, the statement is made that Yeshua's name is given as our salvation. Couple this with Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, where it is spoken of Yeshua, Paul speaking here now, quote, and these are very familiar passages, I know, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Yeshua, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, and notice when it says, for the scripture says, Paul is quoting the Tanakh, the Old Testament as you Christians would call it, Quote, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, and is rich to all who call on him, for whoso or for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. End quote. And that passage, I might remind you, in Romans, is quoting from the book of Joel. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's also look at 1 Corinthians 1 2. To the assembly of God which is at Corinth, those who are sanctified in Messiah Yeshua, called to be holy ones, with all who call on the name of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah in every place, both theirs and ours. End quote. Now here we have again a set of verses where we have God saying that in my name you shall call for salvation. That's the Joel passage. Whoever shall call on the name of Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh shall be delivered. The word delivered there just means saved. And yet, the apostolic scriptures, the New Testament writings, seem to indicate, of course they are indicating, that to call on salvation is to call on Yeshua. So, we cannot have it both ways. Either the Tanakh agrees with the Brit Chadashah that yod heh is Lord, as is Yeshua, or the Brit Chadashah is wrong in its portrayal of Yeshua as Lord. Notice I said Lord a title formerly reserved exclusively in the Tanakh for yod heh You see what I mean? Greek mindset says it's either one or the other. Hebrew mindset says, no, it's both. God is God, and Yeshua is God. And we don't understand this. We affirm it, even though we can't comprehend it. By faith, we grab a hold of this revelation, and we know it to be true, and one day, God will reveal himself to us more perfectly. And we shall be like him. And we shall see him. And we shall understand more fully how Yeshua can be God. Now I want to close with a trinity of quotes. Okay, A quote from the book written specifically to the Hebrews, to the Ivrim. One from Philippians. And finally a significant one from the Tanakh itself. A trinity of quotes. Right, First from Hebrews. Chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. Quote. In the past, 
God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of, the, of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. End quote. That's from the New International Version. Did you hear how, it, how, how the writer describes Yeshua? Powerful. Let's jump down to Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Very familiar passage. Quote, And being found, speaking of Yeshua, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, end quote. Jesus Christ is Lord. And you know what? He's not just Master when we say Lord there. I believe the writer of Philippians is teaching us that Jesus Christ is God. Because that's what the Greek word kurios there, Lord, is implying. And then finally, Isaiah chapter 45, verses 21 through 23, quote, this time I'll be from the JPS, all right? There is no God else, there is no God, there is no God else beside me. I think there's a mis, mis, misquote there. There is no other God besides me, I believe. A just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Oh gosh, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed by the, by the, the, the profundity of what the verses are teaching here. There is no God besides me, God speaking. Either Yeshua is God, or he's not. And I can tell you he is. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear, in quote. You know why I chose those verses? Because the Philippians passage is quoting the Isaiah passage. That's right. To confess that Jesus Christ is Lord with the understanding of the Isaiah 45 passage is to confess that Jesus Christ is Yodhe Amen? Amen. The name that is above every name is the name Yerhe Now watch this. Hashem granted Yeshua of Nazareth the right to use the name for himself so that he, the Son, may speak for Hashem, the Father, so that he, the Son, may speak as Hashem, the Father, and that he, the Son, may receive worship as Hashem, the Father, just as the mystics described the fictional character Metatron doing in ancient times. That's right. It's, it's, it's thoroughly Jewish. It's thoroughly Jewish, I promise you. In fact, and let me close with this thought, refusal to worship and serve Yeshua as Almighty God insults the true God and shows a gross lack of respect for the name. Okay? We'll leave it at that. 
closing blessing is as follows. Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melacha Olama Sheranatan Lanu Torate Met Vechaye Olam Nata Batochenu Barukata Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.